Hey there, you're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. It's a podcast where we talk about life, music, and spirituality. As we get into this, I just want you to know that it's not about getting you to believe what I believe. It's about asking you to ask yourself why you believe what you believe. Well, hey there, everybody. I'm super excited about this next little series of podcasts I'm going to be doing on nostalgia, looking back on the 80s and 90s, the seminal part of my upbringing anyway. And maybe it was yours if you're listening to this. And if you're not listening to this, you wouldn't have heard me say that. You know, not to digress too much, but when people like say in church, if you're here this morning, well, where else would I be? Uh, if you're listening to this, well, um, I, I am hearing it. Maybe I'm not as tuned in as I could be. Anyway, those are a little pet peeve situation that I got going on. Anyway, before we get into the episodes, I wanted to take care of just a little bit of business. wanted to remind you once again that you can support this podcast on an ongoing basis. Think of it as a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe type situation. I'm really optimistic about what this podcast can produce and what it can do in the lives of people who hear it, who listen to it, who tune in. <clears throat> because well, there's this Calvin and Hobbes strip from way back in the late 80s, early 90s. Calvin is sitting at a table and he's got a sign that says, swift kick in the butt, 10 cents. And Hobbes comes up and he says, how's business? And Calvin says, it's terrible and I don't understand it. Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. And Hobbes just rolls his eyes and says, I can't imagine why. And so I know that me saying that this podcast is going to be useful for so many people because it's called Don't Be an Asshole, a Spiritual Guide may seem a little self-serving, but I really do believe that our life, our spiritual life boils down to love God, love people, and don't be an asshole. And so if we can get some support going then that could take the place of driving for Uber or Lyft, which will give me more time to make a better product. And then we can just keep reaching more people and make this into a ministry of reaching people, reaching people for the betterment of a human race, in my opinion. And so, hey, if you could go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Eric Tomier and contribute to that, I would greatly appreciate it. If you happen to live in the Los Angeles area and you are an actor, a voiceover talent, or thinking about it, you should check out Brian Cutler's acting studio. That's where I go. I happen to go to the Wednesday morning acting class. Why don't you join me there? It would be lots of fun. So that's all the business we have to take care of for this particular week. I hope that you enjoy my look back on the 80s and the 90s over the next five weeks. All right. Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm entering what I'm calling my nostalgia series. Uh, I watched the other day The Dirt on Netflix, and while I wasn't a Motley Crue fan, those songs were in the backdrop of my adolescence, being that I grew up in the 1980s. I was born in 1974, so when Motley Crue hit it big, I was like seven or eight years old. 
But by the time I was in junior high and Girls, Girls, Girls and all that stuff had come out, I was hearing the songs all the time, but they just really weren't my thing. I was more of a, you know, like a 70s folk music kid, I guess. So that really put me on the outside looking in. Anyway, this nostalgia series, I'm going to be looking back at the 80s and 90s. And we're going to have a, a meaningful news story. I'm going to talk about a personal anecdote. And I'm also going to give my list of top five musicians from rock bands. So each episode will have top five drummers, top five bass players, rhythm guitar, lead guitar, lead singers. I did a similar thing with the 60s and 70s last year, but it was just about the music and just about the musicians. So there were like 15, 20-minute episodes. I have no idea how long these episodes are going to be. Not more than half an hour because, you know, you know. So this week I'm going to start off with the thing that kicked off the 80s for me. It was December 8th, 1980, and the event was the death of John Lennon. The Beatles are my all-time favorite band, and I know they're a 60s band, and they broke up before I was born, and this is nostalgia about the 80s, but this kicked off the 80s for me. I had just turned six years old uh, about a month before. I just noticed uh, a difference in my dad, and I noticed a difference in people. And when I heard the news, it was just heartbreaking to me because I was such a big Beatles fan already. I had records. Uh, I had this little record player, and I listened to Let It Be all the time, like the original Let It Be album. So the first thing I want to do is talk about how the news was disseminated across the American public. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was no social media. There was no internet. The internet only existed as a way to for people to get on a modem and check work stuff from home. I mean, that was basically it. So we were a long, long way away from news hitting and everyone knowing about something immediately. Network television was king. And so when this happened, ABC News sent something into the booth of Monday Night Football. And Howard Cosell, who was one of the biggest sportscasters in the world at that time and had interviewed John Lennon himself before, got the news. And it was during the game, during a football game between someone getting tackled and uh, a field goal attempt. He says... We have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses, an unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival, Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which, in duty-bound, we had to take. They would have stopped the game if they could, but the game was going on. The guys on the field didn't know that perhaps one of the most famous people who had ever lived, and especially one of the most famous people in the 20th century, had just been shot and killed in New York. So the game went on. Life went on. 
And it just goes to show that our lives are, while interconnected, we all live our own lives in spite of tragedy, maybe because of tragedy. We have to march on because if we all shut down every time something that big happened, well, especially in these last two years, everybody would be completely shut down, you know? So that was how the news spread. That was how the world found out that John Lennon had been shot. Not by Walter Cronkite, not by Dan Rather, but by Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football, which was pretty much the most watched program on television. So that was the way to get the news out to the most people. You know, it's funny, though. Not funny, that's the wrong word. But something I noticed is that tragedy, this happens when life is going. That day was like any other day. It was a busy day for him. He did so many things leading up to that day. Gave his, well, I, I read on the in, on the internet, he gave his very last interview that day. Of course, it was his very last interview. I mean, no shit, right? But he gave her an interview that day. That very famous photo from the cover of Rolling Stone magazine where he and Yoko Ono and he's He's naked and she's like stretched out on the wall. And I mean, it's a famous photo taken by Annie Leibovitz that day. I mean, all those things happened that day and they were preparing for the release of the Double Fantasy album. I mean, he was busy. He was doing life. And that's the way it is. We go through life and we don't expect these tragedies to happen, but they do. And they interrupt things. And as we're going through our daily routine, the the amazing or the incredibly tragic can happen in the middle of the monotony. So always be prepared, always be ready for things to be either better than you expect them to be or worse than you expect them to be. But they're not the monotony of your life. Isn't just that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out of my ass right now, but uh, this is something that hit me as I was going over my thoughts right now for this. Anyway, um, that was the big news story for me. Other people don't maybe think of it as a, a big thing, but every December the 8th, I feel a little bit sad because John Lennon was my favorite Beatle. I mean, I love all of them. I love the whole band, but he was my favorite. I grew up just this huge Beatles fan, and they're still my favorite band. There, there's seasons I go through where I'd rather listen to something else, and I think that happens to all of us. Well, in this keeping with this theme that I'm talking about right now today, um, I'm just going, to, I wanted to share a personal anecdote from my life also in every one of these nostalgia episodes. So like I've already said numerous times in these six minutes that I've been talking, I was just this huge Beatles fan. They were like everything to me. I had this little record player and I played the album, let it be over and over again. And as I got older, I began to dig deeper into their catalog and appreciate Revolver and Rubber Soul and the White Album and Abbey Road and all these other albums. He's this great, great music. But when I was a kid, Let It Be was my absolute favorite. And ironically is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. That's the most critically panned of all the Beatles albums. Uh, when it came out, Rolling Stone magazine and every other music critic were like, you know, if this is how they're going to end. Now, really, that's not how they ended in the recording studio. What happened with Let It Be is they were trying to, they were going to call it Get Back instead of Let It Be. 
And it was supposed to be kind of a stripped down. They were going to get back to their simpler uh, writing style. And Paul McCartney really wanted to perform live again. So they did this film along with it. And they had that famous rooftop concert. And they were recording it. But they just really weren't getting along. George Harrison had quit the band and came back to the band. And there was a lot of infighting. And so they pretty much just scrapped the project. I mean, you look at the album, Let It Be, there are songs that are literally unfinished on it. But I loved all those songs, Dirty Maggie May, I Dig a Pony, all of these little, uh, and all the little humorous outtakes in between them. I, I mean, that just really appealed to me. I absolutely loved it. But they scrapped Let It Be, got back together in the studio and recorded Abbey Road. I mean, they even ended Abbey Road with the song, The End. So that was their their coda, their swan song, if you will. But then after they broke up, Phil Spector got a hold of the Let It Be tapes, added some orchestrative things to it, and released it as Let It Be. And Paul McCartney wasn't happy about it. In fact, years later in 2003, he re-released Let It Be naked. So he stripped it back down. I personally like the original better. Um, maybe it's just nostalgia. But hey, that's what we're talking about right now. But I loved that album. I loved combing through the pictures of the filming because the album, the big vinyl album came with like four or five glossy pictures inside of the recordings and George Harrison and Ringo Starr and John Lennon and and, um, Billy Preston on keyboards. They Apparently, they brought him in because the band was fighting so much. They just needed somebody in the room that they were all trying to impress. So that's why Billy Preston was in there. But those synthesizers, keyboards that he played, man, that really added a lot to the album. So my suggestion to you, go back and listen to that album, Let It Be, with fresh ears, maybe the ears of a six-year-old little boy in Oklahoma, and say, you know what? This is a pretty damn good record. Okay, now it's time to go into... My top five. So I'm not going to do top tens because, you know, I don't have time for that. I don't want to make this thing forever long. But I'm going to talk about my top five drummers in the 80s and 90s. Like I said, and these are going to be my top five. These are going to be the ones who, from bands that that hit me, that I liked, they're not going to be necessarily what I think the most talented is. I did a little more of that in the 60s and 70s because I'm more versed in that music. Like I said, in the 80s, I listened to a lot of Neil Young and I, and a lot of the John Lennon solo stuff from the 70s. I liked folk music. I liked uh, the Beatles and blues. So, interestingly, maybe just to me, but uh, this is my podcast. Uh, you happen to be locked in a conversation with me, and it's kind of one way, which is how a lot of my conversations seem to go. When I was from fifth grade to seventh grade, lived across the street from a girl who was my age. We were in the same class named Nicole. She had Iron Maiden posters all over her room. She also had her own phone. So I was like, wow, you got a phone in your room? That's so cool. Whatever, you know, that was way before cell phones. And so um, she had these Iron Maiden posters up. And man, that stuff looks scary as hell to me. So I just thought the music was thrash, thrash, thrash. I never even heard it before. I recently started listening to some and they are technically very proficient. 
very good. So had I gotten into that music earlier, I would probably have some of those musicians on my list, but they're not. And Nicole, if you're listening to this podcast, why didn't you get me involved in Iron Maiden? I don't, I blame you for all this. You got me to eat a plum while we played basketball, but you couldn't get me into Iron Maiden. I don't really know. I, I, I'm a little bit bitter, but whatever. Okay. So here we go. My top five drummers. Number five, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden. I'll link a song in the description. I don't really feel like I need to go into a whole lot of details here. He was just really, really good. I'm leaving some guys off, like people who played for Dream Theater, people who played for, you know, all those guys are just so technically proficient. But like I said, these are people who I think are amazing drummers or amazing musicians and were in bands that impacted me. Soundgarden, led by Chris Cornell, and just a wonderful early 90s grunge rock band that really helped set that sound. And the drum work in Spoon Man is worth the price of admission. Number two, or number four, I guess, would be Lars Urich from Metallica. I could hear it already. Lars sucks. He's not a good drummer. I... I don't, I don't understand that. Just listen to Master of Puppets. That's all I'm saying. Listen to Master of Puppets. Listen to Ride the Lightning. I said Ride the Lightning. It's Ride the Lightning. I don't know where that came from. But listen to those songs and tell me. Maybe he's lost a step, but those guys are like 60-something years old now. So, you know, cut them some slack. That's the thing. People, like the hardcore Metallica fans... Their first four albums, they rocked hard. They were great, great albums. But they were a band that started in 1981. Ten years later, when the Black Album came out in 1991, um, with Inner Sandman and The Unforgiven, yeah, the the sound changed a bit. Uh, The production value changed a bit. Bob Rock was the producer on that album. And Lars's drums were more looped than than, uh, just, you know, get them in there and play together. I mean, things change. And then... By the time you got to 2001, I mean, 20 years had went by. So they're at my age. I mean, your energy level dips. I remember when they all cut their hair off. I mean, so what? People were like, oh, my, they're not a metal band anymore. Oh, yeah, they, they still are. They still rock. But you got to give people the opportunity to grow. They're artists. Artists need to make art to make themselves happy. Otherwise, if they would have kept making master of puppets over and over and over again. I call that selling out, but exploring new areas of art because you want to, that's the exact opposite of selling out. So, you know, go screw yourself. I apologize for that little tangent for that rant. So number three, Chad Smith from the red hot chili peppers, the guy could play anything. He was like, he's like the Charlie Watts of the nineties. Charlie Watts, if you don't know, is the Rolling Stones drummer. Uh, this classically trained jazz musician who just was the backbeat of the Rolling Stones for literally 300 years. Um, Chad Smith reminds me of Charlie Watts, and that's about the highest compliment I could pay anybody. Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine is my number two drummer. Uh, There's nothing flashy, just that rhythm section from Rage Against the Machine. And later with Audio Slave, I just, it just drove 
it that when any of the music comes on, Rage Against the Machine does the same thing to me that ACDC does. It makes me move. And I am not a dancer. I don't want to dance. I don't want to move around. I like a sedentary lifestyle. I like a couch and a milkshake. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think you do. So anyway, Brad Wilk does that. And for me, my top drummer is uh, is Dave Grohl from Nirvana. I remember being in a worship band. Oh, this was back in 2002, 2003. And I was saying I really liked, I was telling the drummer who's filling in for uh, for us for like one year. And I said, I really like the drumming in Smells Like Teen Spirit. And he's like, he looked at me with disdain and started playing the the verse section. He's like, oh, it's so easy. All it is is don't, don't, don't. And I'm like, not that part. The intro part, the part that's like, on all the off beats coming in with the guitar playing. Anyway, I couldn't get across my point then. I'm probably not getting across my point now. But those are my top five drummers from the 80s and 90s. Uh, looks like Lars is really the only 80s guy on that list, though the Red Hot Chili Peppers did have some success in the late 80s, and Soundgarden got started in the late 80s before they blew up in the 90s as well. So that's part one of my nostalgia series. Tune in next week when we cover the bass players and a significant news story and a personal anecdote from the life of a kid who grew up in the 80s and the 90s. All right, well, not a whole lot of spirituality covered in this except the fact that we're all connected, we're all human. And remember, this quote by John Lennon, time wasted doing what you love. It's never wasted. All right, kids, don't be an asshole.